there's one set right in front of you in the back of a pew. I don't know if any of you have ever fainted, but when I was in high school, I had what my doctor called giraffe syndrome. Uh, specifically, I have really low blood pressure. And so if I don't keep my fluids up, I just collapse. Uh, I'm much better at it now. It's not that hard to do, actually. When I was a teenager, all I drank was soda. And so it, it wasn't what I needed, and that's why it happened. But if you've never fainted before, when you start to come to, it's not like the throwing of a switch. It's a lot more like the turning of an analog dial on an old stereo. It's the weirdest thing because your vision and your hearing, it's not there, and then it slowly comes up to normal again. Um, I mention that because last week I got super sick. Like, I've not had a hard life, so take this with a grain of salt, but definitely the sickest I've ever been in my life. Um, I still feel like that dial hasn't cranked all the way up. I still feel like I'm kind of floating through life. Um, and so forgive me if I seem distant this morning. I seem distant to me. So I'm not surprised if you would feel that way. Um, but, but that's part of the reason I was just totally ransacked last week. Um, nonetheless, I'm very glad to actually be upright and to be with you all this morning and to open God's word. So let's go ahead and read our passage through this morning. We'll pray and we'll take a closer look. We're picking up in verse 8 of chapter 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. The long and short of it this morning, Father, is how we think about our money, our spending, and our generosity reflects how we truly think about you. Our wallets are directly related to our theology. And so I pray, God, that you would open our eyes afresh this morning, that we would see you as the great and true and good giver, and that you would begin afresh this morning, that you would continue the work that you began uh, this morning, that you would shape us and conform us uh, in our character, in your image as generous. We pray this in your name. Amen. I don't know if you noticed while we read through this passage, 
but much of the language here <coughs> is all-inclusive. It's broad. It's big. Um, we'll review verse 8 again in just a second. But if you pay attention as we read these verses again, um, all of the metaphors uh, imply abundance. And so even when he talks about how our giving reflects our submission to the gospel, it, it doesn't just reflect it, it flows from our submission to the gospel. Uh, he talks about abundant harvests and overflowing, and the word all is just rapid fire repeated throughout this passage. Um, Paul is very much a preacher, and so as he comes to the conclusion on this matter to the church in Corinth about their gift to Jerusalem, he escalates, he ramps up, and he paints the biggest and broadest vision that he's given us so far. As he does so, he helps us to understand um, <laughs> that our giving should be in light of the giver that we don't start thinking about generosity on this end where the need is and go, okay, here's what the need is, therefore here should be my response. Instead, we look at the gift from this end with God as the giver of all good things and ourselves as recipients and say, okay, this is who God is, therefore this is how we should respond. And the difference between those two things is very, very important. The New Testament has a good deal to say about what we as Christians do with our money. It has a good deal to say about how we should view the needs of others. For example, in the book of Acts, as Luke is telling us about the early church, one of the descriptions he uses uh, is that he says the church shared things so extensively with one another that there was no poor among them. Now, the reason why that's significant is because he's ripping that language directly out of the book of Deuteronomy. God promises, as we'll see tonight, side note, in our study in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, that if Israel obeys his commands and keeps the covenant, then they will be a nation without perpetual or systemic poverty. There will be no poor among them. And so Luke looks at what's happening in the church in his day just after the resurrection of Jesus and he goes, it's actually happening. James tells us that our faith, if it doesn't take us into the lives of other people, if it doesn't meet the needs of our brothers and sisters, is not real faith at all. Jesus makes a direct connection between our understanding of who he is and our relationship with him and if we take care of the needs of those who are poor and in prison and hungry. Um, so it says a lot about poverty. What's striking, though, is in all of these places, it never emphasizes the need. It never emphasizes the weight and says, look, look at everything you have. Look at how little they have. You should feel compelled to help. It never starts from that place. Even here where Paul mentions the need, he says, yes, in giving, you will meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem, but that's not what I'm really excited about. That's not what's really important. Another thing worth mentioning here is that not only is our motivation for generosity not driven by guilt or, or uh, by, uh, by some sort of pressure based on the need, but it's also not driven by greed. And that can be easy to misunderstand in this passage. Look at what Paul said last week in verse 6. He says, the point is this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There are those who have tried to say, here's the way that God works. You initiate by being generous, and he will respond in his own generosity, and so the road to wealth and well-being is through generosity. Now, the primary problem with this, outside of the fact that that's definitely not what the Bible says, the primary problem with that is that it makes generosity a servant of your selfishness. You give to get. And what we'll discover this morning is the reason why we can know that is wrong-headed is because that's not who God is. God doesn't give to get. In fact, he here doesn't say that we should start the process so that God should respond. Our generosity is not a means to an end. It's a response to God's initiation as giver. And so we have to recognize here, although we're talking about something as practical as finances and what we do with our money, although we're talking about something that is primarily application, we are really answering the question, who do you think God is? What is he like? How do we reflect that personality as image bearers of God? And so notice where he starts in his conclusion here in verse 8. He says that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about verse 8 is with those alls, he really covers all the bases. And so what he says here is that God is able to make all grace abound to you. How much grace? How much is God able to give you? All of it, right? There's nothing left over. Sufficient. And then he says, <coughs> not only is he able to make all grace abound to you, but he says, so that having all sufficiency, so that God... God has everything and is capable of giving everything so that you have everything you need. Nothing lacking. All sufficiency, and he continues, in all things. Okay? So we're not talking about a narrow category, but broadly in every box, full to overflowing. And then he continues on. He says, at all times. Okay? So in all circumstances, in all days, in all seasons, at all ages. Okay? He really covers all the bases here. Now, I want to touch on that word for sufficiency. Because we need to remember that the Greek word that Paul uses here uh, was used extensively in Greek culture, especially in Greek philosophy. Now, the pinnacle of Greek philosophy was uh, quite a ways before the days of Paul or even the days of Jesus. Uh, a, a century, a century and a half ago is when the, the great Greek speakers like Plato and Aristotle were. But that culture had been totally taken in and adopted by the Romans and was still very much active. And so sufficiency, or the word would also be well translated as contentment, is a Greek slash Roman virtue. But what it meant to the Romans, what it meant to the Greeks was self-sufficiency. Disconnecting yourself from your needs so much that you were completely unreliant upon other people. Independent is what the word meant in the Greek mind, in the Roman mind. In fact, beyond that, it meant self-sufficiency in the sense of self-caused sufficiency. 
meaning that you had taken the action to get, that, uh, get yourself to that place. It was an expression or a badge that could be worn with pride, but the way Paul uses this word here can only be worn with humility. The sufficiency that's being talked about here, for starters, is not independence. Let me just point out something to you, okay? When Paul talks here about uh, God giving all sufficiency to his people and then compels them to help the needs of other people who are his people, it means that one of the ways that God gives is through givers. There's a cycle here. There's a movement. There's a flow. In fact, later he's going to say that people will rejoice in your gift and thank God for it. They'll recognize that you're merely the mailman, the messenger carrying God's provision. Okay, so we have to keep this broad thing in mind. And here's one of the mistakes we make about generosity. We see ourselves as the benevolent and them as the needy. We see a one directional flow and so we are provider and they are the ones we are providing for. One of the things that Paul does helpfully for us here is help us to recognize that's not a very good paradigm. You can't exalt yourself over those in need because you pulled your life up by its bootstraps. You have done the right things, made the right choices, worked harder than they have. We should understand that poverty is not that simple. That yes, poor choices and bad habits can lead to poverty, but so can crisis and so can injustice. And a good deal of your own provision in your life stems directly from things you have no control over. The fact that God has given you the opportunity and the ability and the circumstances. As I've pointed out many times for us as a church, just keep in the mind uh, that the fact of where you were born, just where, not even who you were born to, forget your family for a second, just consider where and recognize the impact that has on your quality of life. Think of all of the places where you could have been born that you may never have been able to escape the economics of that reality. It's just handed to you. And so yes, you probably work hard for what you make, but you work with what God has given you. That's true of all people. And so that breaks this, uh, this arrogance that says the needy uh, <coughs> need us because we're smarter or wiser or more successful than they are. So he sees this all-sufficiency being available, and we need to see it in this broad cycle. Um, but this sufficiency is God-given. It is God who has provided and given. And that's always where our generosity starts. It's not, okay, here's what I've made. Now this portion I will give to God. It's, no, God has given me all of this. Now how am I going to use it? Now, notice the second thing that Paul says here. He doesn't just say that God will provide for your sufficiency. He says God will provide sufficiently for you to be a giver. Do you notice the difference between those two things? One says, I have enough for me. The other says, I have enough to share. Listen to what he says again. He says, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. That's excess. 
That's overflow. That's above and beyond your own needs. Now, here's the challenge for us this morning. Either we believe in a God who hasn't given us enough or has only given us enough to survive, or we believe in this God. Those are the options. Either God falls short of this and is not a lavish giver, or he is. So why is it then we seem so often in life to be barely scraping by? Why is it we experience and we go, yeah, I would love to share. Generosity sounds great, but I only have enough for me. I mean, let's just be honest and recognize that's a primary limitation on our generosity. That when we look over our account, when we run the numbers on our bills, we go, I'm so grateful that we're getting by, but that's all there is. But that's not what Paul says here. Is he just being optimistic? Is he just overstating the case? This is where it's helpful to remember who God is. Which one sounds more like the God of the Bible? A God who watches his margins and hands out the allowance and has every dime balanced and says, okay, this is exactly what you need and no more. Or a God who is overflowingly, lavishly generous. And so where is it? Where is the disconnect? Here's where we have to be honest. Here's where contentment comes into it. A lot of times we take things that we enjoy, we take things that we want, we take things uh, that we have learned to rely on, and like technology, we call them necessity. Paul says in another one of his letters that for the Christian, if they have food and shelter, they should be content. And one of the arguments he makes for that is the fact that uh, when we die, all of that stuff is gone. We came into the world naked. We will go out of the world naked. And so if you're going to look at your capital over your life, you're either going to put it to work or you're going to enjoy it and then it's gone. Jesus says something really interesting in the Gospels. He refers to money as unrighteous mammon. Now, I think it's generally helpful to think of things like money uh, or big systems like politics or tools that we have like technology as morally neutral. Right? It's just a tool. It's like a scalpel. You can use it to do surgery and save a life. You can use it to take a life. That's true of money as well. But when Jesus calls money unrighteous mammon, he's using an ancient Near East title for a god, a god of wealth, mammon. He recognizes, as we all should, that money uh, comes with temptation. In fact, Paul says that many people, because of the temptation of money, have run themselves through with many sorrows. And I'm going to assume this morning that that's not a case I need to make or demonstrate or prove. But he says, take that unrighteous mammon and use it to make friends. And if you go back and read the story and the parable that goes along with it, what he's saying is, you have here and now to make your money work for the kingdom of God. You have here and now to use what God has given you, 
Remember the parables that Jesus told of the talents and of the minas? Of these men who were each given uh, a piece of a man's wealth and said, watch over this and tend to it until I return. And then he came back and the first one said, look, your one talent has become two talents. And the next one said, look, the five talents you gave me has become ten talents. And the last one came and said, here's the talent that you gave me. Because I knew that you reap what you did not sow and that you were a harsh master, so I hid it under my mattress. And he says, if you thought I was so harsh, why wouldn't you have at least given it to the bank so you could have given it back to me with a little bit of interest? I want you to notice in that story, the actions of the servants is determined by their vision of the master, right? Why did he hold on to? Because he saw, he saw his master as a harsh master who took what didn't belong to him. The point is this. God has given us enough. That doesn't mean that he's made us self-sufficient. Sometimes we have to raise our hands and say, I need help. It's good for your humility, therefore it's godly. It doesn't mean that you'll always have enough for all the things that you want or all of the things the world says that you need. But David could still say, I've never seen the righteous go hungry. And so what Paul says here is the God that we worship, the God that we serve, the God that provides for us doesn't just give us enough to get by. He gives us enough to share. Notice what he says in verse 9. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he's quoting from Psalm 112 here. Psalm 112 uh, is effectively one of the great personification of the righteous passages of the Old Testament. There are many passages in the Old Testament where the Jews would elevate the righteous person as a model. We see it in the book of Job. We see it extensively in Proverbs, and here we see it in this psalm. And so this psalm speaks of a man who has distributed freely and has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. And it's presenting this as a model to say this is how the righteous behave. Now, that phrase there, distributed freely, has a little bit of recklessness to it. The idea in the original Hebrew of the psalm is that he's cast his wealth into the winds, that he's made it travel great distances. And then it specifies here, and it says that he is given to the poor, and then it finishes by saying his righteousness endures forever. Now, we have to deal with the question this morning, does that mean it is our generosity that makes us righteous? Is that what this psalm is presenting and saying, look, if you want to please God, if you want to prove yourself to God, if you want to earn God's favor, then you must be generous. I don't think so. That doesn't fit the psalm itself if you go back and read it. Uh, it doesn't fit how Paul uses the passage here. Instead, what he's recognizing is that our wallets are often like a dipstick of the heart. Right? You have a dipstick in your car. Uh, it tells you how the oil is in the engine. Now, why do you need it? Because you can't see inside the engine. And so you pull the dipstick and you check and you see the quality of the oil what we do with our money, like I said, opens the window 
to what we believe in our hearts, what's important to us. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what it says here that his righteousness endures forever, he's basically saying this is real righteousness. This is how you know. The reason why the New Testament emphasizes generosity is because generosity demonstrates our understanding and application of the gospel itself. And so he says, look, we should expect that God gives us enough to be generous because generosity is a manifestation of the righteousness that God is working into us through Jesus Christ. You could be the most stingy person this morning and a Christian. Just know that's not where God has taken you. That may be your starting place. That's for all of us our starting place. The heart is, as the uh, Reformation theologians used to say, curvitas in, curved in on itself, focused on the self. What's in it for me? But the gospel changes that orientation, twists us out of ourselves, and opens us up to the world you have to understand there is a direct correlation between the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am chief, and generosity. Think of this. Jesus begins his sermon on the mount with the Beatitudes, and one of them is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, sometimes that's rightly translated as the destitute in spirit because the word that Jesus uses for poor speaks of deep, intransigent need. Okay. But what does he mean, poor in spirit? He means that when you stand before God, you come as destitute with nothing to offer, only bringing to the table need. And according to the Bible, that's what... Christianity is. That's what we bring to the table. That's what salvation is. It says, I deserve death and judgment. Please help me. It says, I have earned the consequences of sin. Please forgive me. It says, I have nothing to offer you, God, but I want to freely receive the gift of what you've done for me in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to come to God. If you come to God wearing badges and medals and say, I deserve to stand in your presence, then you have no understanding of who you are or who God is. And you have no access to his throne room or to his family. That changes the way we view the materially poor. It removes any ground, as we mentioned earlier, for boasting. And it recognizes the value of an undeserved, an unsought after, and an unexpected gift. That's why, as Paul said in chapter 8, remember that Jesus, he who was rich, became poor, sacrificed everything, including his life, so that you being poor might become rich. James takes the gospel and he applies it to the rich and to the poor in a profound way. He says, those of you who are poor in Christ, rejoice in your riches. And those of you who are rich, wealthy, and Christians, weep in your poverty. What is he saying? 
Is he saying that the way God works is he just flip-flops things? So if you come in wealthy, God's just going to take all your money and make you poor. And if you come in poor, he's going to make you rich. No, he's saying that for every Christian, you are simultaneously poor and wealthy. And he says if you're materially poor, you should meditate. You should keep in mind. You should rejoice in your spiritual riches. And he says if you're materially wealthy, you should constantly remind yourself of the worthlessness of that wealth. The entire world will say, because of that, you are to be admired. Because of that, we will accept you. And it says, no, if you're wealthy as a Christian, you need to see that that is just a pile of nothing. What God has done in Jesus Christ changes the way we think about money, and it changes the way we think about our own money. Now notice what he says in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Do you hear the metaphor he's using here? It's a farming metaphor, right? Think of how farming works. It's helpful for us to do because most of us aren't farmers. Okay. Where do the seeds for next year's harvest come from? This year's harvest, right? You plant and all of the things you plant, you harvest, and then you hold off some of it to replant for the next harvest. That's why he's using the imagery of harvest here. But I want you to notice here, Paul has just said, God will give you an abundance on the front end, and now he says God will give you an abundance in the harvest. You see, farmers do a lot through diligence and intelligence, right? They know the you know, nitrate levels in the soil. They know what grows in the region where they're planting. They know how to rotate their crops and all of these things. They also require tremendous diligence, right? There's not really days off in farming. If it's time to harvest, you have a small window, you got to bring it all in. You're up early, you work hard, you sleep hard, right? That's the life of a farmer. But there's still a part the farmer can't do, right? Paul takes the same metaphor of harvest and he applies it to his own ministry, to his own life, to God's calling on his life. And he says, I have sown. Apollos, my partner, has watered, but God has given the increase. He says, the work I've done in the church, I've done my part, but God has given the growth. He says the same thing here. You could be as generous as you want and that would be worthless unless God is in it. Listen again to what he says. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God gives on the front end and then he empowers through the gift itself. Okay? When we talk about generosity, we're not talking about something we do for God. I've already said that this morning. We are talking about something God does through us. That's what makes it worthwhile. That's what makes it significant. That's what makes it powerful. And he says it will lead to a harvest, and that harvest is not uh, material wealth for ourselves. I think that needs to be reiterated. This is not an incentivized selfishness that basically just says, yeah, God is effectively like a pyramid scheme, and you just push your money in the right way, and it comes back to you in spades. No, it's talking here about what? A harvest of righteousness. Now, even here, Paul is using biblical language. This time, not from the Psalms, but the book of Isaiah. Specifically from Isaiah 55, that's where it talks about the God who provides seed for the sower and bread for the hungry. But do you know how that passage opens? The one that he quotes here? 
where it begins before it talks about God as uh, provider uh, for the farmer and for the hungry. Listen to this. Isaiah 55 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. Listen to what God says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Here's what he says. He says, you're all hungry. And he says, but your attempts you're making to find satisfaction, the way that you spend your money, money it's leaving you hungry. Why are you wasting? And he says, instead, come and eat the food that I offer that satisfies. It's on that ground that it goes on and it says, look, I'm the giver of all good food anyways. Materially and spiritually, it's all sourced through me. And then he pushes it further and this is what he says. He says in verse 10 of 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. That's the words that Paul quoted. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He says here the reason God's word works in our life is because God works through his word. Do you see that? He says it won't return void. It's not just that God is the creator and provider of all material goods for life. God is the creator and provider for you as his children and the primary way he does that is in his word. Now, why do I bring this all up? Because Paul states in the very word of God in verse 8 that God is a lavish giver who's given you enough to share. Is that word going to return void in your life? Is it an empty promise? We have to recognize that it may be the reason we don't seem to have enough is because we haven't in faith been sharing. Like the audience Isaiah is writing to here. We're spending our money in ways that don't satisfy. We're using it on ourselves and we're finding no satisfaction. Paul goes on back in 2 Corinthians 9 to describe what the harvest looks like. And once again, we see an increase. It's not merely that through us, God will meet needs that other people have it's something more significant than that. Notice what he says here in verse 11. In summary of what we've covered already, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That's the pattern, right? God is going to give you in every way so that you can be regularly and consistently generous in every way so that, notice this, uh, so that which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify God in heaven. That little word so is very important. Let your light so shine. Let your light shine in such a way that, okay, there is a way that people can see your good works and glorify you when you become the benefactor, when you become the source of all good things when you become uh, the savior. 
But this we're talking about here, where you're first and primarily a recipient of all good things, where you're merely a conduit of God's blessings, where you're, uh, as, as the early church fathers like to say it, just a beggar who knows where to find bread. When that's done, it abounds to thanksgiving for God. When we give rightly, God gets the credit because God is the giver. He says in verse 12, For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing. See that word again, overflowing? It doesn't just meet the need. It's not just enough. It does something more. Why doesn't God just hand out everything we need individually? Why does he pass it through conduits and ways? Why does he use us and not just drop bags of money in the needy's lap? Here's why, because doing this increases the consequence. It overflows. What does it overflow to? It says, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It continues in verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from the confession of the gospel of Christ. The word there for submission is actually the word obedience. They will glorify God because of your obedience to the gospel. Now, the order there is really important. It's not you obey and then there's good news. It's there's good news and you respond to it in obedience, okay? Once again, it is not our righteousness, including what we do with our money, that earns God's favor. But if you have God's favor, you will respond to it in particular ways. And one of them here is generosity. And what it says here is that people will go, him? Her? They gave in that way? What in the world happened? When God takes our selfishness and our tightly clenched fist about the things that we have and he pries it open in love, people notice. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but if God really sent his son then there's a sense where our lives as Christians should be inexplicable. Not undefensible, but inexplicable. People should go, what? Why? And that gives the opportunity to say, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you what God has done in my life. And he sees that happening and he says, look, this isn't just about taking care of needs. This is about testimony of what God is doing, not just in their life, but in yours. This is a demonstration of the power of the gospel that takes selfish, bent inward human beings and makes them conduits of the very grace of God. Not only will they glorify God because of the obedience of your confession, but also the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. I love that, and for all others. One of the primary ways we think about generosity, because we tend to think about it as being need-oriented, is one need at a time. But what we see here when he says, and for all others, is I'm not just talking about this offering for the church in Jerusalem. I'm talking about a lifestyle of regular giving, of participation in what God is doing, in taking, um, taking hits at our own level in comfort and sharing. In fact, when it says here, your contribution for them, the word there is koinonia. It's the word that's usually translated fellowship. What they're rejoicing in is not the gift you gave, but the partnership that you've entered into because you've entered into their lives. 
Paul says that this is what he loves about the church in Philippi's gift. Now, that gift's a little bit different. It, earlier, he talks about the church in Philippi here, but in Philippians 4, they've given a financial gift to Paul out of their poverty. And this is what he says. He says, I rejoice in your gift because you are sharing in my suffering. He doesn't say, I rejoice in your gift because I'm suffering less. He says, I rejoice in your gift because you stepped down and entered into the suffering. You identified with my pain and took some of it on your own shoulder. Love. In fact, notice what it says here. This love will be so profound. Verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you. Who are we talking about here? Who's going to be longing and praying for the church in Corinth? The Christians in Jerusalem who have never met them, who have never known them, who have grown up in a world where we are Jews and you are Gentiles, and that's enough for us. Thank you very much. And now they wish they could meet them, spend time with them, hug them. They're regularly praying for them. One of the reasons Paul wanted to give this gift is not just because he loved the Jews or because their need was great. It's because he wanted to express the profound unity of the body of Christ across cultural boundaries, across great distances. And he says, when you give this gift, it's going to overflow into love. It's going to overflow into relationship. Verse 14 again, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Do you see that? They don't just long for you and pray for you because you're the benefactor. They, they go, what an incredible gift has been given to you. The gift of generosity. If you go back and read 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's probably one of the most striking features, is that Paul keeps saying this gift you're giving is actually a gift God has given you. Not just in the sense that we've been talking about this morning as God has given you an investment and he wants you to utilize it, but he's given you an opportunity for your good. Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's a blessing in generosity that God wants for us, that he's offering us, that he's making a way that we can have. And Paul says here, they are going to see God doing that work and they're going to go, man, look at the incredible gift God has given the Corinthian church. Look at the change he's made in their life. Now this last sentence, verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That word there for inexpressible, this is the first time we find this particular Greek word in all of Greek literature, which I find interesting because it's inexpressible. So inexpressible that he had to coin a word. And the word he coins is inexpressible, right? It, it doesn't really tell us much. We need to recognize here that this is the conclusion of this passage. So when he suddenly overflows into Thanksgiving and says, thanks for this gift, we're right and proper to go, what gift? The, the grace that he's shown the Corinthians in giving? The, the gift, this inexpressible gift that they're taking to the church in Jerusalem? No, it's, it's more inexpressible than that. The only gift that foots the bill is this broad reality that God has given himself in Jesus Christ. Our salvation in Jesus Christ. The inexpressible gift here is so broad, it includes everything we've talked about in this chapter. The fact that God gives us enough to be generous is part of this inexpressible gift. But as we saw, that's not just a five note. It's an investment God is making in us. 
an opportunity to change our character, a means to develop us into the image of God, a blessing in disguise to where the more you give, the more you receive. But at its deepest heart is the broad reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It is true that when we look at the things that we do for God or for others, we should balance it in the scales of what God has done for us. Picture those weights for me, okay? There's a crack in the cement beneath the scale of what God has given us in Jesus Christ. Whatever we put on the other side, if we just let go of the scales, it's just going to throw it right off the scales, right? But more significant than that, even our side of the scale is God continuing to give. So many of us have this mentality that basically says, okay, God's done this great thing for me and now he's going, now what are you going to do to show, show me how you appreciate me? How are you going to respond to this? Okay, I've done this big thing. Now it's your turn. Chess clock is hit. No. He gives and gives and gives every aspect of your life, every opportunity, every resource that he hands you is not just a naked blessing, but a conduit of blessing built into God's plan. Listen to the words of Paul in the book of Romans. He says, if God has freely given us his son, how could he withhold any good thing? I'm not calling you to be generous this morning merely because there's a needy world out there. I'm not calling you to be generous this morning merely because you will be held accountable for what you do with your money. I'm calling you to be generous this morning because that call to generosity is God's generosity to you. It's God's gift to you for your good. And if I can make the most obvious of points this morning, have you ever met someone who regretted their generosity? I know sometimes we give for wrong reasons and then the people don't thank us and we go, well, I wish I hadn't given them, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this. We're talking about a generosity that mirrors God's generosity, that gives when we don't deserve that knows that many will just step over the body of his son in that sacrifice and say, no, thank you, not interested, I'm fine on my own. I'm talking about the generosity that is good because it is generosity. You think anyone ever goes, what a waste. I wish I'd got a PS4. I'm telling you this morning that God's word will not return void that what you sow in generosity, you will reap and others will reap along with you and it will abound in thanksgiving and love and the glory of God. Let's pray.